This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Damien Sassau this evening. It is ugly, ugly, ugly out there right now. Brent crude is down by nearly 9%. WTI sub 100 down by 8%. Yields are tumbling. The German two-year, for instance, down by nearly 19 basis points today. The British pound sharply lower as well. The euro trading at a 20-year low versus the US dollar. Uh, We've got a 102 handle there. The FTSE 100 finishing sharply down. The Brent price, the oil price, feeding into the likes of Shell. Shell down by circa 8% at the close. It is an ugly picture around the world. Damien, what do you make of the price action? We're not even talking about equities, are we, Guy? I mean, it's just a bloodbath out there. But I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, look at where German 10-year buns are. I mean, geez, I mean, 118, I think we're at now. I mean, yep. we were at 176, uh, you know, mid-June, right? And if you look at Italian five-year, we're looking at what? Uh, 222. I mean, we were at 352. 352. I mean, so it's just unbelievable. The moves we're seeing in fixed income, it's going to make it very difficult for uh, for managers to navigate the uh, the environment. Absolutely. Makes you wonder what central banks are going to do next as well. We'll find out. We're going to get minutes from the Fed tomorrow, ECB on Thursday as well. All of that still to come. Really choppy, choppy, violent moves uh, in all asset classes, it seems, at the moment. The recession fears absolutely front and centre right now. We'll come back to this in a moment. First, let's get some headlines. Here's Charlie Hi, Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Let's begin with the BOE because the Bank of England says the global economic outlook has, quote, deteriorated materially after surging commodity prices pushed up inflation around the world, posing a further downside risk in months ahead. The UK central bank said volatility in the cost of energy and raw materials poses a significant risk of disruption that could amplify economic shocks in the future. Meanwhile, senior Bank of England officials say they are open to the possibility of mortgages lasting 40 or 50 years, an initiative that the UK government believes could help young people get onto the housing ladder. BOE Governor Andrew Bailey said the central bank would support and engage in any process that would envisage innovation in the market. Royal Mail managers across the UK will carry out strike action on July 20th through the 22nd over job and pay cuts. In a statement, the Unite Union says Royal Mail has a plan to cut 700 jobs and slash pay by up to £7,000. The union says its members, quote, have no other option but to take strike action as months of consultation have failed to persuade Royal Mail off the path. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. As Charlie was saying, the Governor of the Bank of England painting a very downbeat picture today about the global economy, the British economy. This is what Andrew Bailey had to say. Since the last FSR, which we published in December last year, the global economic outlook has deteriorated markedly. Global financial conditions as a whole have tightened significantly. This is in part due to central banks across the world having tightened monetary policy in response to the outlook for inflation. Market interest rates and corporate bond spreads have also risen, in part reflecting expectations of further tightening of policy. And developments in Russia's invasion of Ukraine are a key factor 
uh, affecting the global outlook. That said, banks continue to hold overall capital and liquidity resources sufficient to support lending to the UK economy, even in severe economic out outcomes. And those severe economic outcomes can include weaker economic growth globally, a further sharp tightening in global financial conditions, and the potential for further volatility and stress in financial markets. So despite the weaker outlook, the UK banking system remains strong. And in line with expectations, although capital ratios declined in the first quarter of this year and are expected to fall back slightly over coming quarters, all of which was expected, I want to underline this point that we have a resilient system. We have a resilient system. We have a resilient regulated system, I think is probably what he meant to say, <laughs> as with uh, all crises. You never quite know where, where the challenge is really going to come from. And left field is usually where you will find it. Lizzie Burden joins us now, uh, Bloomberg's economics uh, and government correspondent. Lizzie, the Bank of England clearly much more downbeat than it was when it published its last report, financial stability report. How much has changed? I think it's downbeat in terms of how difficult the climate is. But I do think that there are signs of optimism. For example, you've got the bank moving ahead now with the stress test that it had put on hold from March before it didn't want to overburden the banks because of the war in Ukraine and inflation and rising interest rates. But now it's saying stress tests are going to happen in September. The results are going to come out middle of next year. Also, the bank's saying the capital buffer is going to rise back to its pre-pandemic level of 2%. So again, it's showing faith in the resilience of banks to handle this pressure. Um, and from the consumer perspective, you kind of heard it there. Uh, he said that wage growth and the government's support package are going to soften the blow from global inflationary pressures for, because of the war. So that will keep the number of vulnerable borrowers steady. So basically, the markets have been volatile, but they're functioning. And the banking industry is more resilient now than in the time of the financial crisis. That was the, the theme I took away from it. Lizzie, I find it notable that the uh, the BOE flagged uh, in its financial stability update uh, the market plumbing, you know, that UK banks may not be able to lend to shore up their balance sheets, right? And that's kind of stealing a page out of the Fed here in the US, you know, just where it kind of focused on, you know, dealer balance sheet elasticity and those issues. I'm curious, what do you think the BOE can do to improve lending, i.e. risk-taking, at the margin? Uh, well, I think it just has to show that it's uh, handling the situation confidently, and that's clearly what Bailey's message has been, not just now, not just in the last report, but uh, the whole time he's been in office. Remember, he uh, has this back regulatory background, and he constantly wants to say that the situation now is better than it was during the financial crash. So uh, you can take faith in British yep. banks' ability to handle this. The, the banks were the last war, as you say. The banks were the financial crisis that we had to deal with in 2008. Usually that means when you regulate one part of the financial community, that risk moves elsewhere. What does the bank say about shadow banking? What does it say about uh, buy now, pay later? Where did the risks potentially, where could the, the risks lie elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, that wasn't really the focus of 
this report, uh, there had been a focus on crypto in the December report and it came up again. Uh, you know, the bank said that there was extreme volatility in crypto markets and really it's about the risk of uh, contagion from the crypto market into broad, the broader financial yeah. system. And the other thing is about uh, housing. Uh, you know, there's now talk about the 40 to 50 year mortgages. Actually, the Bank of England seems pretty lax about it. It says that it's open to the possibility, or at least open to them being reviewed. Uh, so buy now, pay later doesn't seem to be the top concern anymore. Yeah, you know, briefly, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Lizzie, I'm, I'm just wondering if you could just expand on that, you know, just the fact that uh, now we might see 40 or 50 year mortgages here in the UK. I mean, do you think that this could really help alleviate some of the supply demand imbalances we're seeing there? Certainly at the cheap end of the market, you know, first time buyers, this will help with. That's clearly who the government's targeting. It'd be very politically popular. Um, but remember, even though the Bank of England has planned to drop its affordability test it's maintaining the 4.5 times loan to income ratio so that's going to be uh, prohibitive for many buyers prospective buyers lizzie great stuff thank you very much indeed bloomberg's lizzie burden joining us on what the bank of england had to say about the stability uh, of the financial system it is certainly being rocked right now by significant volatility out of assets this is bloomberg this is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Okay, welcome back. Let me give you some numbers. A, crude prices are down very sharply, but against the US dollar, and this is related to what's happening with crude prices, the Norwegian krone is down by 2.54. The Swedish krona is down by 1.83%. The Danish krona is down by 1.7%. The euro is down by 1.65%. The euro is now trading at a 20-year low versus the US dollar. The British pound breaking 120 on the cable rate today, trading at 119.18. Audrey Child Freeman, Chief G10 FX Strategist of Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us now. Audrey, is this a is this dollar strength or is this just weakness elsewhere? I think it's a combination of both. And you can see it in, in the risk environment, which remains very negative for, for now. And that's very favorable, favorable to the dollar. And, and today, actually, all kicked off in Europe with the story uh, coming out of Norway on, on the offshore strikes concern. That's only exacerbated the worries about the session in Europe. So initially, it was euro-driven, but I think it's very much of a big, uh, large risk-off move that we've seen across asset classes. You know, Guy, uh, Audrey and I had lunch in London just last week, and, you know, we just can't help but turn off those analysts kind of lean on the bearish dollar narrative. I mean, that's not to say dollar weakness won't materialize at some stage. It just means that, you know, I guess people don't really respect the cost asymmetries that go hand in hand with dollar funding. So, Audrey, what does the technical picture look like in euro US dollar right now? I mean, what support levels are left before the cross makes a run of parity? It's looking pretty dreadful. Um, I mean, if you'd asked me a week ago, I would have kind of said, well, the 10350 level was quite uh, resisted quite well on a couple of occasions, but it certainly hasn't today. Uh, so we've, we've broken that level. And now, to be honest, I feel it's only a matter of time before uh, the market tests parity. The timing is not ideal either because we're getting into the summer holiday season, so I suspect the volumes will be lighter. 
and you can always get you get exacerbated price action when that happens. And certainly today, it's, uh, it, it's evidence of that happening. I'm, I'm just impressed that you both get to have lunch. I, that, that sounds that sounds very nice. I sounds great. Very short, very short lunch. Very short. <laughs> uh, okay, I believe you. I believe you. Um, Audrey, when does this become? I, at some points, this is going to become a massive problem for the European Central Bank for for the Bank of England. This is a supply shock, and if the currency goes down, it's only exacerbating that supply shock. And I was just thinking about about that subject uh, uh, today, and thinking about you know how a few a few years ago uh, a weaker euro was actually good news, but we were in a deflationary context then, and now it's a completely different picture. So it, it's bad news from all sides. It's bad news because it exacerbates the inflationary problems that we have in Europe, um, and it also you know something that hasn't really been talked about, but I think we should start to think about that. It could actually uh, worsen the European external position, and in particular the current account position, which has always been so supportive for the Europe, for the Eurozone, sorry. Um, and if you start seeing a deterioration in, well, you will see a deterioration in nominal um, external net, net exports uh, and ex, ex, external data, then the, the case for more structurally led Euro downside uh, will gain momentum. Now, I know that usually this doesn't drive the FX market, uh, certainly not G10, it's more of an EM story, but I think that because there's so much momentum, negative momentum towards the euro, you could start uh, hearing some investors uh, raising that problem and raising that issue, and, and there's not much we can say about it. It is negative for Europe. Yeah, no, I mean, well, Audrey, I mean, Help, help me understand. I mean, you mentioned fundamentals, you mentioned the fiscal situation, but, you know, for you today, what are the most important drivers of, you know, spot FX movement across the G7? I mean, is it Audrey, central bank activity, yield differentials? Dave, oh. Damien's going to finish this question, and you've got 20 seconds to answer it. Yep. Okay, so for me, it's, it's uh, the, the, the uncertainty in the market. What we need is risk appetite to return, and then okay. we can think about a game changer. Audrey, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Greatly appreciated. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Let's talk travel. Siddharth Philip, uh, our travel correspondent, joins us now with his daily update of good news. Uh, today's good news, British Airways is going to pull an estimated 800 more flights from its summer schedule. Um, I think that's now 11% of its schedule through October that has now been cut. We've also got SAS, uh, the Scandinavian airline, filing for Chapter 11. Uh, I think you've got a train strike starting in France tomorrow. Uh, oh, and I think I saw some news earlier that uh, the refuelling staff at Heathrow are going to be going on strike as well. It's going really well. So uh, over to you, Sid. Let's talk a little bit about what is happening here. Just talk me through why uh, IAG, British Airways, have made this latest move. So British Airways is uh, cutting cutting further flights now uh, because of the fact that they have a sort of staffing issue and the government has asked the airlines to cut flights by Friday to retain the slots as well as sort of continue operations. I mean, essentially, the government saying to airlines, hey, look, look, let's see what you can operate realistically and cut the flights that you can't, and then you can retain the slots for next season. So British Airways has gone ahead and done that, and they've cut another one percentage point from the previously announced 10% cut, and that runs through October. 
Yeah, I mean, Siddharth, if you could talk to us just about the timing of these strikes. I mean, we're entering, you know, the end of July here. We all know what happens there. I mean, we've got uh, kids who are back. It's summer holiday. It's all that stuff. And now we've got RMT rail strikes. I mean, even EasyJet's COO just resigned yesterday amid all this. So, you know, curious what you see. I mean, is there anything that the government can do to sort of alleviate the pressure on the travel sector? Uh, I think at the moment it's mainly to do with the companies. And so companies which were expecting a bumper travel season and resounding sort of profits after two years of virtually no travel now have to contend with higher wages, especially as inflation surges and cost of living rises. And I think that's really fueling all these strikes. I mean, we just had an announcement by the United Union which said that AFL, which runs the refueling services at Heathrow, would have 50 workers striking because of the fact that they hadn't been given a wage increase in three years and they're asking for a pay hike which hasn't really been listened to. And that's important because the airlines, including Virgin Virgin Atlantic, United, Delta, are all sort of getting the refueling at Heathrow from these companies. Okay. So do we know when we start to get some good news, when you're going to be turning up here on the radio telling me that that the situation is starting to get better? Because it seems to be getting progressively worse on a daily basis. Uh, It does. It does seem to be getting worse on a daily basis. And that's, uh, I mean, we hope that it's going to resolve itself before the summer season. I mean, uh, some airline industry executives are hoping that all these announcements are sort of ways to resolve the issues. Do do, do they really believe that? It's a good question, and it's hard to believe, really. <laughs> Said at this point, just to be just to be clear to everybody, is just sort of smiling in a sort of knowing way that basically tells me, no, there's no chance. I mean, to be fair, I mean, the airline industry hadn't, uh, they'd been asking for all these sort of cuts to the restrictions and restart of travel. And then when the restric- restrictions were lifted and travel came back, they weren't ready, ready for yep. it. And that's really been the major issue here. And until they can get a grip on what's going on and actually fix that, uh, summer looks like a washout for a lot of travelers. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was just traveling through London. I have some good news for you, Guy. I mean, as a U.S. uh, passport holder, getting into London, never been easier. Never been easier to get through the queue. I mean, I used to have to, my bags would be off the carousel waiting for me when I got through the queue. But this time around, I was there before the bags were even off the plane. So there's some good news. Coming in seems to be a lot easier than getting out because getting out with the cancellations, I mean, I can't even imagine. You clearly missed the baggage mountain at Heathrow, which (laughs) everyone seems to be talking about. And apparently the tabloids, if you believe them, say that the mountain's starting to smell now. That's not good. So basically, this this is a pile of luggage at Heathrow... That that basically has either not been delivered on time or has come in on a different flight because people have have not had their bags turn up at the right time. Amazing, and it's absolutely massive. And I've heard numerous stories of people turning up at Heathrow, getting through, as you say, relatively quickly, but then not getting their uh, not getting their bags. Uh, not getting their bags at all, and and some people are arguing they may never see them again. Sid, on the fuel front, we're seeing jet fuel prices. Sorry, we're seeing oil prices coming down very sharply. Now the expectation is that doesn't translate very quickly into jet fuel prices, but if it were, how significant an impact would that have in the ability of airlines to survive all of this? Because today, SAS, which has got a pilot problem, has actually got too many pilots, uh, filed for Chapter 11. The arithmetic here is is all over the place. You've got 
rising jet fuel prices you've got uh wage issues with with uh with staff uh, and then you've got super amounts of demand i this is a really toxic combination but if, if jet fuel prices were to come down how big an impact would that have that would be a fairly significant impact for the airlines because the airline industry has i mean jet fuel is one of their biggest cost centers apart from staff and so if one of the two major costs come down then that's good news for the airline industry especially as airfares rise at the moment and so, I mean, it could be good news, but then again, it takes a while to translate into action. And then you have the airlines that have hedge fuel. Yep. And so that's another complication. I'm wondering, do you think, I mean, look, I understand that inflation is running at a 9% year-over-year clip in the UK, but are the unions perhaps asking for a bit much here? I mean, I mean, what's, what do you, your mind is a reasonable you know, wage increase, I guess? So, I mean, that's a hard one to tell. And to be honest, I mean, the unions are sort of just capitalizing on the fact that there's a massive shortage of labor in the airline industry, aviation industry at the moment. And I mean, part of the issues that we have at Heathrow, at Gatwick, at Shaipal Airport is the fact that there's a huge shortage of staff. And so during the, during the pandemic, the airlines and the aviation companies had the upper hand in terms of firing workers and sort of cutting wages. And this is sort of the revenge of the worker and the unions by saying that, hey, we're going to hold you to ransom until you give us a better pay hike. Um, do you think, just on the last quick note, do you think any other airlines are going to go under? SAS filing for Chapter 11 today. It's a bit of a weird one. But do you think airlines are going to survive this? Uh, it does seem like the airlines will survive it. I mean, especially the main ones in Europe. Uh, they're sort of out of the woods in terms of pandemic and in travel restrictions. And they're into sort of peak travel. I mean, I think at this point... We'll have to keep an eye on the compensation bills for cancelled flights. But yep. apart from that, it looks like it will be a better summer than for the last two years. Sid, great stuff. Sid Hoth-Philip updating us daily on the travel situation at the moment. I have to say, given where the pound is at the moment, Damien, there's no chance that we're going to be all coming over and seeing you. Sub-120, <laughs> I remember when it was two. Two to the dollar. Those days seem like a distant memory. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. I'm alongside Damien Sassar this evening. There is a lot going on in financial markets. I think that means something of an understatement. Brent crude is down by circa 9% right now. So oil is down by 9%, nearly 10% on the day, 103.40. Um, WTI stateside down by 8%. Off its earlier lows, but still pretty ugly. Um, in the equity market, massive sell-off, massive sell-off. Germany down by 2%, nearly 3%. FTSE 100 seeing similar things. The oil price obviously taking the shine off things like BP and Shell. Bond markets, though, massively bid. Uh, the Dutch two-year down by nearly 20 basis points. The German two-year down by nearly 19 basis points. Uh, UK rates down sharply as well. The market is pricing in a recession. Now, there's a bunch of reasons for that, and we're going to come on and talk about it just in in a moment with Cameron Cries. Uh, but there are there are a lot of factors coming today uh, into kind of a, a kind of really ugly session. So we'll get some more details in just a moment. Damien's here. Cameron's going to be here. It's going to be great. 
First, let's get some headlines with Charlie Pan. Hi, thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. And here's what's going on. Automakers had their worst June sales in decades in the UK. As ongoing component shortages kept them from meeting demand, according to data from the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, new car registrations declined by 24% to 140,958 vehicles, the lowest for the month since 1996. First half shipments fell 12 percent to around 802,000 vehicles, the second week is showing in 30 years. The Scandinavian airline SAS has filed for bankruptcy protection in America after a pilot strike grounded a majority of the carrier's flights, worsening the travel chaos that has gripped Europe at the height of the summer season. According to tracking website FlightAware.com, the carrier canceled 236 flights today, or 78% of planned departures. Travelers reported widespread disruptions at airports in Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, where SAS has hubs. And British Airways will be pulling more flights from its summer schedule as the carrier looks to reduce last-minute cancellations amid continuing staffing shortages and long queues at airports. The unit of IAG has now reduced its timetable by 11% through October, compared with a 10% cut for the period announced in May. That is the latest from the news desk, and Guy Johnson back to you now in London. Thank you very much indeed. So it's getting a little bit crazy out there today. Oil prices are down sharply, bond yields are down sharply, equities are down sharply. Uh, Damien's here, Cameron Kreis is now here. Let's kick it around and figure out what's going on. Cam, let's start with you. What on earth is happening out there? Uh, yeah, uh, well, the dollar is uh, kind of gone bid no lid, as they say. And um, that's kind of radiated through everything else. Um, as of this morning, crude seemed to be hanging in there, and I kind of made and published an observation of that extent. Uh, and now I look like a complete muppet because uh, <laughs> crude is and commodities generally are, are behaving in line with what you call the invoice currency effect, which is when the dollar rips higher, uh, the price of things denominated in dollars tends to move lower. Um, and that obviously has had a, has had a ripple effect into, into fixed income, because if we're going to get less inflationary impulse from commodity prices, then perhaps the Fed and other central banks can be a little friendlier in the way they prosecute policy. Well, Cam, you know, prior to today, or maybe in lieu of today, uh, markets had been operating as if the Fed put was dead, right? I mean, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what do you think it would take for the Fed to step in and backstop asset prices? And, you know, is there like a level in equities or credit spreads where you think the Fed might very well blink? Uh, In the near term, no, not really. Um, I think they'll be driven by much more by the economics rather than the financial markets, um, because it's frankly, it's, it's economics that have taken us to this point. Um, you know, typically the Fed you know, over the last sort of two, three decades has, has tightened rates. Um, yes, when uh, economic recoveries are mature uh, or maturing, but, uh, you know, also I think in a sense, because financial markets have given them the, the opportunity to do so. And then they've trimmed rates uh, thereafter because financial markets are telling them, well, it's time to trim rates now. Um, this time has been very different insofar as it's inflation 
and the economy that has caused them to a put rates up and b adjust the adjust the pace and magnitude sort of on the fly. So uh, I'm not sure we should be looking at the familiar um, place of financial market to tell us when they'll quit because um, you know if we get a 500k payroll on Friday, <laughs> uh, I mean, do you think they're going to be talking about stopping? If, 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 you know, if we get a huge payroll number, I'm not saying we will, but, um, you know, I think they'll still be dictated by, by, the, by the economy. Um, clearly, if this crude price move extends and or continues, then that will change the calculus on expected inflation outcomes. And maybe they can then moderate the, um, the magnitude of how far they go, but I don't think it necessarily uh, or I think it necessarily does not lead to a, a reversal until uh, things become much, much, much clearer that the, the inflation genie has been stuffed kicking and screaming back into his bottle. Damien, the, the dollar is clearly incredibly strong. In your world, kind of what happens now? Like, are we going to see some desire? If the dollar keeps going at this kind of clip, you get through parity, euro, dollar, like the pound goes down to sort of 115. Broadly, you are you are seeing kind of huge gobs of dollar strength. Normally, that is not good news for the emerging markets. No, not at all. I mean, look, I, central banks chasing inflationary developments, running out of good policy options, and intensifying asset price volatility is common in emerging markets. But we're talking about the U.S. Fed here. You know? So, I mean, it's driving this adverse spillover into weaker segments of the global economy. And look, we're seeing that in places like Sri Lanka, for example, Argentina most recently, um, you know, across the board with the frontier really exposed to risk in my mind. And yeah, you know, I'm concerned. I mean, I think default rates are going to start, you know, really spiking higher here. I mean, I know we're talking different type of default rates. We're not talking corporate defaults. We're talking sovereign sure. defaults. But out along the periphery, I look at some of the external debt loads some of these countries have taken on. Forget about it, guy. It's 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 going to be a backbreaker. It, I, it it's going to be a backbreaker in Europe. Like Europe is in in yeah. a really bad place right now. Like, Karen, what what signal do I take away from from euro dollar? At, at near parity levels? I think the signal you take is that the only policy choices that the ECB has are suboptimal. Uh, you know, there is no optimal policy uh, in, in Europe because if you think of traditional drivers of the euro as a kind of a two factor model, one is sort of interest rate differentials, and two is sovereign uh, um, distress, for lack of fragmentation. I think yep. is the uh, you know is the word du jour. Um, uh, the if they put rates up uh, and extend, you know, to tackle the inflation problem and ostensibly um, narrow interest rate differentials, then you know magic beans uh, anti fragmentation tool or not, there's a perception obviously that's going to apply pressure to the periphery. Um, Guy, I think what Cam's trying to say here is Europe does not have a homogeneous fiscal system. I mean, you can't manage policy with different local rate and FX markets. I mean, let's be clear. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah, well, I mean, well, so, I mean so the, the ECB, in a sense, he faces a conundrum that, a, that, a, that an emerging market central bank correct. Uh, uh, you know, faces, where sort of uh, pursuing a higher rate um, in... in, in um, you know, to control inflation, which itself is exacerbated by currency weakness, yep. uh, just applies more pressure onto onto the sovereign curve, uh, ra- rather than um, sort of yeah. So, the so they, can they do that? So can 
can they act like an emerging market here? I, essentially, we've got a well, supply-side shock. We, the, clearly is, the currency is quite clearly saying, yes, we can. <laughs> well, OK, but, but so the, easy, the normal response would be to raise rates, but they can't do that because they're in the spread management business, they're not in the inflation-fighting business. But that would be the normal reaction here. You would raise rates because you've got a supply shock, your currency is going down, you, you're importing energy inflation, you need to deal with it. But the EC, I, can the ECB do that? Well, this is, this is the point I'm making. Yeah, is, exactly. Is that there's no, you know, there's kind of a Heisenberg uncertainty principle involved here, or a, call it Lagarde uh, incapability principle, where you can't, but, okay, you, so you, can, you, can't, you, you can't address both issues simultaneously. And then, okay. you know, there was this nonsense the other day about we don't want, any, we don't want banks to make any money from rate hikes. I mean, yeah. I, you need a stable banking system. Let them make some money would be my argument around that. But but nevertheless, yeah. but but in a situation like this, the market is going to is going to shoot, shoot first and ask questions later. And the market is basically saying you are trapped. So how, how much worse could it get? Because ultimately, the market is going to push the ECB until something breaks. What does that look like? It probably uh, ends up looking a lot like uh, they bring back, you know, the QE light. Uh, and then they've been kind of talking about stuff like that. Um, but, you know, you remember the old OMT. The, 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 the beauty of OMT is never had to use it. Yeah. Maybe, the, maybe the, the market forces the ECB to actually employ some of these, some of these magic beans tools that well, it comes with a lot of conditionality, and the Italians aren't going to go for that. So, I, again, that's another pledge. Well, that I mean, yeah, I mean, what we find that what people uh, will or won't go for in the cold light of day can change a lot when markets are going absolutely doolally. Um, so I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock and stuff that was yep. a few weeks ago holding in perpetuity. Yeah, so I mean, look, I, I mean, here for me, it's more about EM central banks. I mean, guy, we were talking about it just a minute ago. They've historically followed the Fed and other central banks with a lag. At this time, is obviously different. You know, Cam, you know, you're looking into the second halves here. You know, do you see the restrictive conditions? Um, you know, that's kind of taking on now in, in the U.S. and in Europe. I mean, do you see that sort of expanding into the emerging market landscape? And if so, which countries do you think? you might actually be drawn into maybe some receiving positions. I know it's a little too early, but you know that's the only way we can look at emerging markets from a foreign investor perspective. Which markets stand out to you there? Well, I think the, you know, the, the markets that uh, have been battered, uh, the oil importers, I guess, is the, is the, is the shorthand, right? Um, because if the market decides that developed the developed world is becoming more restrictive more quickly than anticipated. You get these recession worries, and, and you see what's going on with oil prices. Well, clearly, if the, the worm has permanently turned in oil, and that is obviously a massive if, um, uh, then that would naturally give the most room to, to places that have been most adversely affected. Um, by by higher crude prices, and I guess I mean that's a that's a fairly long list, and you're certainly better yeah. qualified to, to, to enumerate them. <laughs> no, 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 than, but uh, I, I, I think you, I, am. 
I think you're making a great point. Look, I mean, again, I was in London last week meeting with all these guys, you know, at the EMTA event, you know, the annual seminar, the Emerging Market Traders Association, and it was very difficult for anyone to create a bullish narrative on receiving rates in EM, and that's really where things start for me. You know, you need to see some evidence that investors are willing to take that risk because yields have gotten so very attractive, but it's just amazing how how consensus the bear trade is in EM. I mean, look, I'm just talking my own book here. It's 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 it's, it's like waiting for Godot yeah. here. But yeah, I mean, I guess part of the problem is that, you know, attractive on, on what basis, right? Um, on a nominal rate basis, sure. But on a real rate basis, which back in the good old days, I'm sure you remember, is how you used to evaluate EM. I don't know. I mean, real rates are still pretty uncompetitive relative to most of the last three decades, aren't Fair they? Fair enough. Final question. If, and this is a big if, oil prices come down... Now, th- there's the whole issue of the supply bottlenecks around refineries and allowing that transference of lower oil prices into lower gasoline prices. But if you were to see lower gasoline prices in the States, Damien, just walk me through how different the policy environment, the market environment would look. Well, I think, look, I think, you know, what you're talking about is headline versus core here in the U.S. And yep. for me, you know, it's really going to be not just, I mean, it's really not just energy prices any longer. It's really food prices. I think that's really, for well, that's me, a- the... A notable different, yeah. you know, kind of differential here, yeah. Cam, your take on that? Yeah, uh, I mean, unfortunately, the things that are, have driven inflation on, uh, in many ways, are, are kind of lagging. Uh, I mean, we're we're not we're still some ways away, for example, from seeing um, shelter prices turn lower. Um, right. We haven't really even seen house prices uh, in you know in terms of sale sales prices go lower despite the rise in mortgage rates. Um, so until we see that, then you're not going to get a move in rents. And, okay. and until you get that, you're not going to get the lagged impact on owner's equivalent rent in, in, in the CPI. So, or okay. the PCE numbers. We're going to, so. fellas, we're going to leave it there. Great stuff. Thank you very much. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio 548. Guy Johnson with you in London. Damien Sasser with you in New York. We've been discussing it. It is the story of the day. Oil prices down and down really sharply on the back of a strengthening dollar. Um, let's bring in another voice into this conversation. Uh, Natalia Niazhevich. Uh, joins us now to give us her take on what is happening here. Natalia, talk me through what is happening. Why is oil down and down so sharply? Hi, Guy. Yeah, so first of all, of course, uh, there is a lot of fear of a global recession. We also had a call from Citigroup. They see oil at $65 a barrel. And there is a big debate now what will affect uh, the crude prices in the near term tight market, tight supplies, or fear of global recession. Also, we had news out of China. They are increasing testing, especially in Shanghai, and cases are rising. But what's really interesting is that earlier today, we got news of Saudi Arabia, and they increased prices for Asian markets. And this is a main indicator that the demand is still strong, and high prices will not affect demand. So it's a little bit like a mix of everything. 
You know, Natalia, you mentioned China, and so I find it really interesting. You know, how should you know managers view China in the current environment? You know, they've not lived up to expectations. You know, the PBOC has not been cutting rates. They've not been supporting demand in China. You know, is that the real risk to energy prices today? That China just turns the switch. They're back up and running. They're stimulating the economy again. I think our own economists are calling for 75 bip of rate cuts through year end. Do you think that's enough to get you know time spreads in crude oil to get things normalizing to some extent? So China is a complicated story, definitely. And now, since we have the still, uh, we still have a lockdown in China. It supports, if I can put it this way, the market. But if we look at data out of China, especially in um, uh, travel mobility, we see that the demand is growing. It can put pressure on crude prices in the near term. So the demand is still strong. Uh, we see increased flows out of Russia to China, right? Because mm-hmm. China and India, they became main buyers for Russian crude. So demand is still there. And as soon as China reopens, fully reopen its economy, it's going to be more demand and it can actually push prices even higher. Okay. So we're all over the place. Uh, it, just in terms of the supply side, um, you mentioned OPEC just a few minutes ago trying to raise prices. We've seen that certainly coming out of the Gulf today. Nevertheless, there are questions about whether or not the the uh, whether or not OPEC or OPEC Plus can actually increase supply much more from here. It's interesting that we're now basically seeing the U.S. being the marginal supply lift. Talking through the supply side, I. If you were to see oil coming down sharply, does that ultimately take barrels off the market because we're going to see less investment as well? Yeah, so you mentioned OPEC, and this is the most interesting story right now because everyone knows that OPEC Plus doesn't have enough spare capacity. Uh, now we are waiting uh, what uh, President Biden's trip to uh, Saudi Arabia and the Middle East will bring us. So, for example, we know that Saudi Arabia and UAE are the two countries with the biggest spare capacity. Uh, experts are saying that they can increase uh, by one million barrels a day each Uh, Will it be enough? Will it be sustainable? That's a big question because Saudi Arabia increased uh, production uh, by above 12 million barrels a day twice, but it wasn't for a sustainable period of time. Now, also, we have a lot of other developments across the world. We know that uh, we've heard from uh, Norway there is a strike here. It can affect about 300 thousand barrels a day that's according to energy aspects and some other places like libya kazakhstan they also have outages it affects the supply side so the market is very very tight on the supply side you know natalia i'd love you to stick with just saudi arabia for me i mean here's the interesting thing that i see you know this is an economy that's going to have a 10 percent budget surplus surplus a 16 percent current account surplus and their nominal GDP is going to grow by 50% over the last three years to over $1 trillion U.S. You know, talk about a winner. I mean, for me, how important is Biden's meeting with MBS? I mean, is that like, I mean, does that have the, the ability to materially change the supply-demand situation in crude oil? Yeah, so Saudi Arabia definitely uh, wants to uh, keep production um relatively high, but at the same time, they don't want to see lower oil prices. So they will be kind of concession. We don't know. Uh, We will see uh, later this month how the story will develop. But at the same time, Saudi Arabia is facing lots of other challenges with the spare capacity. They also uh, decreased flows to China. I think it's really interesting because now uh, some people are saying Saudi Arabia and Russia are competing for Chinese market. Because, interesting. Yes, because Russia supplies more crude. They need 
some find some extra markets for its oil and nobody wants to give up and uh, you know share this market um natalia if we if we do see a recession a global recession i city's talking about 65 how low could we go here i there, there are there are issues with the the lack of supply that we have anyway we've got problems with refineries could could prices really push significantly lower from where we are now um, so there are a lot of different opinions. I don't think I don't see 65 now, but maybe Citigroup has um, a better understanding of the market, and definitely they do. But at the same time, you mentioned refinery capacity, and this is really crucial because it's not about oil and crude. This is about products, and we have such a low spare capacity globally here in the U.S. Uh, refineries operate at 95% of capacity. This is above pre-pandemic levels, and the market is getting tighter and tighter. And uh, it doesn't look like uh, we have enough spare capacity to produce more uh, gasoline and jet fuel. So since the market is tight, demand is still there, it's unlikely that prices will go as low as 65 or even lower. You know, Natalia, I don't want to take you out of your wheelhouse too deeply, but, you know, for me, I look at these producers out along the periphery. I'm thinking Nigeria. I'm thinking Libya. I'm thinking Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan, you know, other former Soviet states. You know, what what's going on in those economies? How are oil prices impacting them? You know, one would assume Chevron, some of the well, I guess I didn't have time for my question. There you go, guy. (laughs) We're going to wrap it up. Um, Thank you very much, Natalia. Thank you very much indeed, Damien. Um, really appreciate what has been a really busy day and the context that you've both given us. Um, apparently, we may be getting an announcement from Boris Johnson fairly shortly, so I just want to flag that up to everybody. Uh, but while we watch what Boris Johnson may be announcing, we're certainly keeping an eye on the markets. Some great coverage continues right here on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>